Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. G'day everyone, and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. Now, it's often said you don't realize how good something is until it's gone. This may apply to the low inflation environment that prevailed up until the pandemic. Apart from a few nasty interruptions like the GFC, the Eurozone debt crisis, this saw a downtrend in interest rates, mostly low unemployment, and an upwards trend in asset values boosting returns. Not so good for housing affordability though, but pretty good overall for most investors. The explosion in inflation over the last year and the associated surge in interest rates and slump in investment markets makes it all seems like, seem like a distant memory. The good news is that as we noted in our last podcast, there is reason to believe that the short-term surge in inflation may be peaking, led by the US, and this along with other factors, may result in a better cyclical outlook for shares over the next 12 months. The bad news though, is that, as we have noted in various reports this year, is that we have likely seen the bottom of the long-term decline in inflation from the early 1980s, and inflation is likely to be higher over the medium term than it was pre-pandemic. This note takes a look at five structural factors driving this. The first one is bigger government and less economic rationalist policies. Of course, the reaction to the inflationary malaise of the 1970s was the economic rationalist policies of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and Bob Hawke and Paul Keating in Australia. These focused on boosting the supply side of the economy, limiting government involvement in the economy through policies such as deregulation and privatisation, policies to boost competition, measures to boost incentives by lowering tax rates, labour market reform to make labour markets more flexible, and so on. This all helped lower inflation. Now, as a result of the problems highlighted by the GFC, rising inequality, stagnant wages, aging populations, climate concerns, and a collective memory loss regarding the lessons of the past, particularly the 1970s, there's a backlash against economic rationalist policies and more support for government intervention in the economy. It's evident in Australia, for example, with the rising trend in government spending and revenue as a share of the economy. Widespread pressure to raise taxes, together with measures to return to multi-industry bargaining within the labour market. The risk is that this greater government involvement in the economy leads to lower productivity growth, which will hamper the supply side of the economy and add to inflationary pressure. The second trend is the reversal of globalization. Some people have said this is deglobalization. I don't think it's quite that yet. Long way from uh, getting to an environment where we're all just operating in countries on their own. Um, I don't think that's going to be happened, but we are seeing a reversal of the trends that we've seen since the end of World War II. Since the end of World War II and the formation or the agreement of the, what they was called at the time GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in 1947, we've seen an explosion in global exports and imports as a share of global GDP. This was given a boost in the 1990s with the integration of China and Eastern Bloc countries into the global trade system, along with the formation of the World Trade Organization. This saw production, rather, allocated globally according to comparative advantage, often to the lowest cost, and the development of highly integrated global supply chains. The cost reductions and competition helped reduce inflation. Now, of course, this is starting to go in reverse. The trend towards freer trade stalled in the 2000s. Trade barriers are on the rise. Trading blocks are being formed. The pandemic and rising geopolitical tensions are accelerating this reversal as countries seek to onshore production to reduce threats to supply chains, spurred on by resurgent nationalist sentiment and a return to scepticism 
of free trade. The reversal of globalization looks like it has a way to go yet. Inevitably, it will lead to higher costs and hence higher inflationary pressures. Third trend is an increase in defense spending. Over much of the last 60 years, in fact, since the end of World War II, world military spending as a share of global GDP has been in decline. The most recent fall started in the 1980s and got a push along with the ending of the Cold War. This took pressure off metal prices as military spending tends to be metal intensive and it helped keep government spending down, which freed up resources for use by the private sector, both of which were disinflationary. Now we're seeing a rise in military spending spurred on by the Russian invasion of Ukraine and of course China tensions. Even Germany and Japan are boosting military spending as is Australia. This means more demand for metals and more government spending which will add to inflationary pressure. Fourth trend is climate change and decarbonisation. Of course we hear a lot about this one lately. Ultimately the shift to more sustainable energy will, I think, result in lower costs. As energy from sources like wind and solar is cheaper, that energy from most fossil fuels and it's still getting cheaper as the technology evolves. But as we are a long way from that yet, and climate change and the transition to net zero will likely add to costs along the way and inflation in multiple ways, and there's a bunch of ways this will occur. We're going to see increased extreme weather damage resulting in higher and more variable food and road transport costs associated rebuilding costs and higher insurance premiums, costs associated with mitigation, mitigation against the damage caused by climate change, increased demand for metals as economies retool for sustainability. For example, electric, an electric car uses six times more copper than a petrol car. I think we've heard that in nauseam, but it's a reality. And an increasing energy costs as we are not seeing the usual supply enhancing investment response in fossil fuels to higher energy prices. And finally, Increased pollution regulation will add to costs like just like the anti-pollution equipment in the 1970s added to inflation at the time. So longer term, I think that transition to net zero will be a huge benefit and ultimately lead to lower costs, but the transition and the associated problems with climate change generally will add to costs and hence inflation. The fifth point is, might be summarised as less workers and more consumers. Demographic trends are well known. Global population growth is slowing and in advanced countries and China, the working population, the working age population is now in the process of peaking and starting to decline. And as is well known, populations are aging, resulting in a rise in the ratio of children and older people to working age people, i.e. the so-called dependency ratio is rising. Now, of course, we're in Australia and thanks to its higher immigration program, Australia is in a somewhat better position with a still rising workforce and slower, more slowly rising dependency ratio. But globally, the upshot is less workers, less supply and more consumers, more demand, which will likely add to inflationary pressures. Similarly, adverse for inflation demographic trends are flowing from the entry to the workforce of the inexperienced millennials and gener Generation Z, Gen Z generations, much like the baby booms. Baby boomers were named in the workforce in the 1970s. That led to a bit of a slump in productivity because the baby boomers back then weren't so experienced. They were very young, just like millennials and Gen Z people are today. And of course, at the other end, we've got these experienced baby boomers retiring, all of which is adverse for productivity. And of course, the pandemic had the effect of refocusing workers on quality of life considerations, making them more demanding in terms of pay and in some cases retiring early, such as those aged over 55, particularly in the US and the UK. So all of those things I think have the impact or will have the impact of adding to inflationary pressures over time. So we heard recently last week, in fact, Reserve Bank Governor Lowe 
referring to some of these structural forces, particularly those pertaining to demographics and globalization as adding to inflation variability. But I think they will also likely add to inflationary pressures, making economies globally more inflation prone as they imply more constrained supply and increased demand in some areas. The more inflation prone environment means central banks will have to work harder to keep inflation down to their two to three percent targets than they did pre-pandemic. Now, of course, in countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand, higher household debt levels will aid in that process because they make monetary policy more potent than it was in the 1970s when household debt was a lot lower. That said, it will probably still require higher and more variable interest rates than we saw in the pre-pandemic period to keep inflation at that lower range, in other words, at the target range. Now, of course, there's a bunch of implications from all of this for investment returns. The collapse in inflation from the 1980s provided a tailwind to investment returns compared to what otherwise would have been expected from levels of nominal growth and investment yields. And that's basically because it meant lower interest rates, reduced economic volatility and uncertainty, and hence lower risk premiums, and a higher quality of company earnings. For growth assets like shares, it means they could trade on higher price to earnings multiples. For real assets like property and infrastructure, they could trade on lower income yields as a result of that shift from high inflation to low inflation. Now, if we're moving into a world of somewhat higher inflation than we saw pre-pandemic, that tailwind um, will be removed and potentially reversed. Higher interest rates may, will make cash and fixed interest relatively more attractive to investors. Price to earnings multiples on shares will likely settle at lower levels compared to where they were pre-pandemic and income yields on real assets will likely settle at somewhat higher levels. And of course, this is still working through the system. Higher mortgage rates will mean a lower capacity to borrow and hence pay for homes, many more constrained home prices. Now, of course, if inflation averages around central bank targets, in other words, that two to 3% level, which is our base case, in fact, returns will be constrained, but still reasonable. If alternatively, inflation turns out much higher on a sustained basis, and I'm not just talking about the last year or so, then returns risk being weaker a lot weaker than we've become used to. Which makes it very important that central banks are successful in keeping inflation or getting inflation back down to target and keeping it there. It's just that the structural backdrop means that it will likely be harder to do that going forward than it was pre-pandemic. So I hope that's been of some value. Until we meet again, adios. Keep up to date with Dr. Oliver in the Simplifying Investing podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to your favorite streaming platform. That way you'll never miss an episode. All topics discussed today are general in nature and haven't taken your personal circumstances into account. It's important you consider taking tailored financial advice that is relevant to your own situation before making any important financial decisions. 